Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of being in conversation with a very special guest. Mac McCartney is many things, but perhaps chief among them, he is a storyteller, a writer and a changemaker. Oriented towards cultivating a more just, peaceful and regenerative future, and mentored by Indigenous people over many years, Mac has acquired profound and original insights into the questions preoccupying many contemporary leaders today. Seeking to inspire the emergence of the leader in each of us, the kind of leader who will take courageous action for a better world, Mac's work seeks to champion a new story of sustainability and reconnection so that together we may walk a path that supports the flourishing of all life. An international speaker and author of two wonderful books, Finding Earth, Finding Soul, The Invisible Path to Authentic Leadership and The Children's Fire, Heart Song of a People, Mac is the founder of Embercombe, a beautiful 50-acre rewilding estate on the edge of Dartmoor that offers courses, programs and experiences designed to reconnect us with ourselves, with community and with the wild nature that exists within and beyond each of us. Described as a place to breathe, to reconsider, to regenerate and to relearn, I had the precious opportunity to spend a week at Embercombe on a course they call The Journey at the start of this year, in the crisp, cold month of January. It was a profound and moving and rejuvenating experience, incandescent with connection, beauty and the magic of stories told and retold to help us find our place in a changing world. I can only say that if you're yearning for a deeper sense of purpose and connection with nature and with the vibrance and preciousness of your life, This course is a real gem, facilitated with skill and soul and compassion, and I heartily recommend it. You can find out more about Embercombe at embercombe.org, and I'll also include more links in the show notes. And now for our conversation. Mac, it's lovely to be in conversation with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Enjoying this beautiful, sunny, crisp, frosty morning. <laughs> I wish I was there because it's uh, it's cold and rainy and grey and decidedly un-Spanish here in Barcelona today. But um, I would love to kick off our conversation by asking you what I ask all of the guests when they come into conversation, which is what do you think and feel is going on in the global human psyche, if we can use that frame to begin with? Ooh. That's a a question to begin our morning with. (laughs) All right, what I feel, Natalie, is that we we are being basically a mirror. A hard mirror has been placed in front of us and we're being asked the question, um, you know, do you have a place on this earth? Is this your time? Uh, Do you want another chapter? 
or are you now on the sort of have you expended all you have to bring and is it time to draw the curtain and leave the stage i don't feel that uh as it were that that hard mirror makes an assumption on the answer but i think that this is one of the great gifts which were given to us by creation is that we do have choice and we can either choose uh, and it'll always be through our actions but we can either choose to do the most extraordinary thing which would be to come back into relationship with life fully and participate for another era whatever that might happen to be or we can simply say we um we don't have it in us um to find to to be truly intelligent to find the wisdom the love the care and the understanding of the privilege that we have to be on this earth amongst all these other beautiful creatures and beings in which case i suppose our actions will then um take us right to the cliff edge and over the edge hmm. interesting the idea of the the mirror and when you're talking about that i'm wondering how many of us have to decide that we don't want the car to veer off the edge while trying to wrest the wheel from the people who are driving it. It's kind of, how many people does it take to make a different choice? Yes, it's, um, <laughs> there are theories, aren't there? Um, there are theories, and I think we don't know. All I would say is that um, it's entirely insufficient uh, at present. And, and there is a big difference between um, wanting things to be different and being willing to uh, inconvenience ourselves sufficiently to make that different outcome more likely mm. and so the, you know I've used this phrase many times we've always said the greatest danger at this time is not climate change or any of the other big issues it's the passivity mm. of uh, millions of good people um who who have have yet to sort of access, who have yet to realize that their contribution truly does matter and it, i think it's a really really difficult difficult one because our days are filled with things that feel important and uh you know rushing our children off to school and earning money and paying bills and all the stuff that fills our lives or or indeed if we're less fortunate just trying to find the next next meal or heat uh, mm. a room in the house whatever it happens to be and in more desperate parts of the world simply basically to survive but there are many people with real agency in this world who have not seen that this is the power that they wield and therefore continue really to operate within what we've been offered rather than seek to really radically change it and that may be all it takes to nudge the car over the cliff mm. um i'm not saying i i'm not actually i don't dwell too much on the likelihood of of either option because i don't feel i have any means to answer that question but i do know that it's in our hands and uh and that the outcome is still undetermined so many thoughts here. I was listening to um, a conversation between Joanna Macy and 
forget the name of the chap. I should remember. Anyway, she was talking about that similar place of presence where you're, you're aware of the possible outcomes, some of the possible outcomes, and yet you're still, regardless of the outcome or the percentage of chance of, you know, whatever probability people want to attach to, to the possible futures we could create or inhabit, showing up anyway. And this kind of joyfulness that can come when you do that amidst the grief, amidst all of the other emotional reckoning that has to happen. And one of the things that I think about quite a bit and feel into quite a bit is um, not just kind of the sensation of, am I doing enough? Is what I'm doing adding? Because it is very easy to, to feel as though, like, for instance, in conversations like this, there's a subjective sense for me of there being meaning and purpose to our conversation. And I like to imagine that this is going to reach other people's ears who may not otherwise have encountered you or your work or the other people that I speak with, and that that has some impact. But I'm also conscious of the fact that it's very easy to feel like you're doing something without making other necessary changes that would move the needle. And then on top of that layer, things that I keep trying to remind myself, because it doesn't really fit with the, the general westernized script that I've certainly inhabited, is the things that we can change people's perceptions with or break people open a little bit to kind of connect with what they love. And this is something I want to come back to in a moment. Things like art, things like music, things like gathering, being in ceremony together, sharing food together, that are so undervalued in many of our Western materialistic societies that there's also this, this thing of the things that I do value personally, that I don't attach external value to, that I'm doing more of, you know, there's also that question of, well, maybe that's where the work is and where it actually is taking root in ways that we might not imagine or see because you don't ascribe value to it. So I'm curious, what are the things, practices, ways of being, other elements that we could be engaging in from your perspective um, and with your background work with, you know, not just working with people in this more sort of transformational space, but also within the corporate world, so in these different domains. From your experience, what are some of the ways in which we could be changing our lives so that we're not hurtling across this cliff edge and then dropping instead of <laughs> sprouting wings and trying something new? Gosh, Natalie, I think it's, um, it's almost uh, if, if one scribed a circle on the floor with 360 degrees, there are that many, um, you know. And, and if within each degree you then split it into another 360. And whatever that adds up to, then we're somewhere in that region. Mm. I do, um, yes, I do agree. I mean, you know, every time that um, a couple or a group or a family or whatever sit down and uh, enjoy food together and there's music and there's storytelling and there's just the laughter and an in love enjoyment of life. This is a ripple of of something life affirming that goes out over the world, you know, across the world. Every time children or and ad adults come to that play on the seashore, all these things are so important. And Every time somebody serves us food, how they are with us or how we are with them, and on and on it goes. So there is a kind of, um, there's one sense in which we often think of these things, which is, you know, uh, am, am I doing enough? What is the work that I'm doing? And that's, I think, important and to be considered. But there is the other side of it, which is um, how do I speak to my partner, you know? 
Um, how do I, what do I bring to the relationships of my life? And we might think that that just only extends a small circle, but it doesn't. It's how we are with the person that we're um, speaking to uh, on from a utility company to do with our bills. You know, it's how we um, engage with the shop assistant. It's who we are, you know, you know what I mean? It's, it's vested in every single tiny, our neighbours and so on and so forth. Whatever they bring. So it's huge. And mm. it's, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm aware there are some people in our world who are doing wonderful things and you probe their private lives and you discover that, that they're, way they behave, as it were, is a million miles from how they speak. Mm. So this is, this is a big thing, f I think, for, well, in my own small way, someone like me who speaks, let's say, and the lights go down, the people leave, you step onto the street and you ask yourself the question, who is this person when no one is watching? Mm. And I think it's a good question for all of us to answer. Um, um, I mean, I've just had, actually, uh, an inquiry from one of the big oil companies to, to go and have a conversation about speaking to them. Oh. And, and I don't know yet why they would want me to go and speak to them. And I don't hold any great uh, sort of um, sense of that, this, that whatever I might or might not do will have some kind of uh, seismic impact, you know. It'll, it'll have, if, if, if indeed it happens, and if I choose to do it, it'll have a tiny, yet possibly significant impact. But I like to remind myself, you know, uh, these people, uh, they are, uh, I, I'm not really so different from them because I do put fuel in my car, you know. I do drive on roads which are, you know, I, I'm implicated. Mm. And I don't think that changes my stand about various things, but it's important to me to remember this is another human being at the other end of, of this phone call or whatever it is, who probably um, uh, is attempting to lead their life in a good way and, you know, all these other things. So... I find that helpful because I do feel that meeting respectfully, whoever it is that we converse with, is more likely to, um, to yield some kind of result. And there are endless uh, things going on in our world where we see, I, I think, uh, how unhelpful it is when it operates in, the, in another fashion, where we simply believe so powerfully in our own rightness and and the righteousness of our position and then the demonizing of the other um i don't i don't i don't, doesn't seem to help mm. anyway coming back to your question yes in every direction how do we parent our children how do we how do we you know do we really give them everything that they need when they're little and as they grow older and less perhaps immediately less in one sense, less adorable, in that no, no longer this chunky, compliant little being who runs around 
shouting daddy daddy as you as you arrive after a day's work you know and now doesn't even bother to acknowledge your presence and is somewhere upstairs doing something you know which you'd probably rather not know about and all the rest of it you know how do we do all these things what do we teach them it's so big you know what would happen if we took the entire education system and said we're now going to redesign it to be really about assisting our young human beings to become truly uh, people of integrity, people, you know, if I can use this old-fashioned word, honourable, honourable people, uh, brave, courageous people, intelligent, well-informed people, people whose potentials have been nurtured over years to help them be who they are capable being how extraordinary that would be and yet it's not what we do Mm. it goes on and on the jobs that we have you know so it's very (laughs) big (laughs) it is big and I think one of the things I'm hearing between the lines of your answer is also it's um it's almost about our um orientation towards life which then shows up in this multitude of different ways um and one of the things that I really, actually, I'd like to, is it okay if I quote a little bit from your book, The Children's Fire? Yeah, please. Okay. So um, I only came across this book after I'd been to Embercombe for the journey, which was just an extraordinarily beautiful, poignant experience. And if you're listening to this and thinking, what is it? Go and check out the Embercombe website. It's um, transformative, nature-connecting, heart-cracking open, beautiful experience that you can take yourself on with these beautiful people down in, in Devon. Anyway... I came across your book after having experienced the journey and there were lots of things that um, rang out from the pages of your book. But one of the things I think connects with one of the themes that you just touched on now is this idea of not not cutting ourselves off from parts of ourselves and othering other people. And so there's one part that I'd like to read, which is humanity has an almost unlimited capacity for both savagery and sublime kindness. And you write, Exalting the light invites the dark. Every time we reach for the stars and cease to attend to our feet, we become vulnerable to the jealousy of that which is dishonoured and excluded. Only deeming light, goodness, kindness and perfection as holy informs the fierce creative vortex of our primordial ancestry that it is not welcome. So something I'd like to maybe talk about now is, is to ask you, how do we move towards integration and wholeness without falling into the trap of othering or dualism or allowing our darker impulses to create undue suffering? Yeah, well, and I probably don't have a complete answer to that question, but let me just say, we have for years been frightened, let's say, of our sexuality. We have for for centuries been terrified, I would say, of women, really, yeah. and their um, um, self-evident collection to, connection to the cycles of life. We are so frightened of everything that's inexplicable or mysterious that we seek to control it in our religions, in our political systems, and on and on, in our economic systems. We, we seek to control And it never works. You know, it hurts, it uh, distorts, it wounds, and it leads to all kinds of, you know, um, uh, self-harming 
uh, really, on a, at a sort of um, species level, I think. So, so we have to somehow um, acknowledge, or if I could say the other one, say, let's say our capacity for violence. Hmm. You know, we, we have that, and some of us have it more than others. It, it's been a really interesting thing for me personally. So at my age now, okay, so next birthday, 74, I'm hardly, um, you know, I'm a pale shadow of the man I was when I was 24, let's say. Now, in my younger years, I, I couldn't help. I thrilled, to, if you like, to the, to the sound and feeling of battle, if I can mm. put it that way. I, need, I wanted and I needed that something of that in my life. When I, when I attended some of the indigenous ceremonies, the people that mentored me, I realised that that whole aspect of the human had been uh, wrapped into the ceremonies. So the stamping of the feet and the, and, the, and the howling, you know, and the songs and the drums beating and the whole thing was an acknowledgement of the fierce, wild, uh, animate capacity, if you like, of human beings. Not just men either, you know, just the women. Just an amazing, amazing feeling. When you add to that going without water and food for a number of days, you know, and you're, you're just hurling yourself against this, this experience, feeling it all, and it's, you know, not harming anybody. It's uh, glorious. It's, it's a sort of um, expression. And it's really necessary because without that, where does it go? In fact, later today, I have a phone call with a young man and, uh, and a woman. They're, they plan to marry and I'll be the celebrant in their wedding. Mm. who is himself uh, in the special forces um, and uh, an elite soldier. And that was his experience. He couldn't find the fierce threshold of that could accommodate mm. that aspect of him that was so... Um, I, I, would, I don't know, it's ancient and present primordial and um, and and just um, well ferocious mm. yet I would say that he is my experience of him is he's a kind and the sort of person who if you're ever in any kind of difficulty um, you would you would be thanking you know the heavens allowed that such a person was stood by your side because they would not they would do anything in their power to try to to protect or help you mm. so i i feel in all areas this is this is why it's so difficult how do the people who've never been taught these things teach or facilitate these things to younger people mm. you know how, how do we do it ourselves but this is where everything around diversity and inclusivity and the, 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 what we might call courageous conversations, the, the fumbling of our way to a level of honesty and, and a way of living that, that where we feel the fear, 
but we do it anyway. Mm. You know, we, we, we acknowledge these things, but we, we, our commitment is so great, we say, I will continue to sit in this circle, as it were, and I will learn and grow, and I'll feel everything, and it'll hurt sometimes. But if I can trust the people who are holding that circle, then maybe I can find my way through to a greater acceptance of who I am. And I would say, in a way, you know, astrology describes this for me, you know, because you, you know, somebody born with an awful lot of Mars in particular aspect in their chart is a certain way. We, we could, at a very basic level, we could say, you know, the, the, the Aries child, are they any less important or evolved than the Libran, you know what I mean? And so on and so forth. Some people might say yes, and, and, I, and I just find, and I say, oh, please, you know, they are expressions, one could say, of energies, some would say archetypes, that exist in every human being, and on some the volume's turned up and on some the volume's turned down. Mm. In the end, we do have to understand the wholeness of who we are, and that and that there are things about the human which are really quite, really are definitely very frightening. But they're mostly frightening, and they all become frightening, when the experience of that person has been such that they have been traumatised, hurt, bruised and wounded in one form or another to the degree then that they, they you know, there is there is no ability that has been cultivated to help them um, manage and balance their own behaviour. And in many ways, this is, this is not, I'm not talking about the sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of edge of our society who, who sort of touch and go will end up in prison, but I'd say it exists in the corporate world and every other world. Yeah. People who think it's okay to be a significant part of producing something that is pulling the rug from out from under our children's feet, or destroying mm. is destroying whole ecosystems. You know, this, uh, whilst at the same time thinking that they're a fairly decent human being. Mm. So let's talk a bit about that because I think there can be a tendency to keep worlds separate, which is something I'm very interested in. How do you kind of weave the worlds together? So if we're thinking about the problematic aspects of how we have to, most of us, make money to get food, to get shelter, to get heating, and and we do abstract um, value in the sense that, you know, if I'm making enough money to put a roof over my head and feed my, my dependents, that's a good thing. And so then we don't see necessarily the impact of having to engage in a system which is potentially very exploitative. And yet the systems that we talk about, these abstract systems, they're not abstract. They're populated with people like you and me, as we kind of touched upon. And so I would like to talk a little bit about your your 25 years plus of experience as a leadership consultant in these sorts of realms, you know, spoken at international conferences, in the public sector, the corporate sector, the third sector. And I'm curious when it comes to maybe igniting people to walk a more regenerative path within these problematic systems and structures. If you could maybe share one of the stories that you shared uh, 
on the journey about getting a group of these people to adopt a more sustainable strategy. Do you know the one I'm referencing? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> well, uh, I don't think there's any harm in saying that this was a, a part of P&G. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was at that time um, doing some work with um, WWF. And uh, and I was part of the One Leaders um Oh, gosh, I can't even remember the name of the programme. Anyway, One Planet Leaders programme at a university in Lausanne and different places. And uh, we had been asked to put together a presentation to this part of PNG um, that would convince this group of people of the case for sustainability. And this particular group had been chosen specifically because they were a high-performing team. And they needed to be a high-performing team because uh, if it landed well and if they adopted it, then it would be noticed and uh, given credit, if you like, deeper within the company. So if we'd given it to some um, non-poorly-performing uh, team, you know, um, everybody would have immediately just... Given, to, given it the cold shoulder. So, as you can imagine, assembled were, you know, the greatest and best minds on the sustainability, um, regenerative side of things, and, and presentations were made. It was a, I think it was a, a two, two day, two and a half day, maybe three day event. Presentation after presentation, overwhelming uh, inf- um, sort of... Um, logical, uh, rational um, material presented which which made the case for sustainability. Mm. And they were bored rigid, this folk, <laughs> you know, <laughs> bored rigid. They were a very senior team and they, and they just weren't interested. And at one point, one of them just spoke up saying, look, you know, he said, I'm sure it's all very worthwhile and all that, but, you know... We love selling stuff. We love selling stuff, you know. And it, this may be important, but that's the sustainability department's job, as it were. Mm. Uh, we'll work within the, within the sort of um, uh, guidelines that we're given, but we're just going to get on and do it. And um, to be frank, uh, your presentation and your argument, everything else is not landing. So our our little team retired in a coffee break, you know, rather distressed and, uh, you know, and feeling like a great opportunity had passed by. And and I was thinking, uh, there is utterly no point now in tweaking and doing whatever. We, we have to we have to take a risk and we have to meet this in some way head on. So I said to the group, would you mind, would you mind if I... Uh, do something with this group, which which might land and it might <laughs> confirm them in their opinion that we are completely irrelevant and all the rest of it. <laughs> and um, our team said, yes, OK, go ahead. So when the next session was convened, I spoke to them and I said, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to answer a question. But before I tell you what the question is and outline the way we're going to do it, I would like you to promise me 
each other, yourselves, that you will answer this question with as much courage, integrity and truth as you can muster. Are you up for this? And I phrased the question in this way because I, I felt like I had a reasonably good grip of these people. And, <laughs> and they absolutely believed themselves to be courageous. They absolutely believed themselves to be all these things. And they liked challenges and all the rest of it. So with a, a single voice, they all said, we, you know, con- construct your question, you know. <laughs> Whatever it is, we're ready. So I thought, okay. So I'd like you to shift your chairs now and sit in a circle. And there was immediately a slight sort of... <laughs> and they sat round the circle. I say, good, right now then, I just want to remind you before we proceed that you have promised that you will answer this question with integrity, with honesty, with courage and all this. The question is, what is it that you must deeply and profoundly love? There was a sort of dead silence. And I said, in a moment, I'm going to, as you just sit with that question, I'm going to ask one person if they will begin. I didn't say who would like to speak first, because I knew, and I know, that whoever speaks first sets the note. And they, that's a chime that registers with others. And you can go against whatever they say, but you, you're already, at least, you, an example has been set. So I asked this individual, who I believed was the sort of person who would answer it without any joking around, um, they would just go for it. Mm. And they spoke. The third person in, we had the first tears. We had not had anything remotely like that in the whole of the workshop, of the seminar. Um, we had the first tears, the third person in. We, we had a sudden revelations being shared by different people that they'd never heard from each other. And halfway through, the level of emotion was exploding out of this group. It was so big. We had, we had the, one of the directors with a cataract of tears oh. and we had to stop the whole thing. And I gave them 20 minutes, half an hour to just sort of go and um, not to sort of talk with each other, but just go and find a quiet space and just gather themselves. I had to, I had to go off with one of them and my arm round them, consoling them and just yeah, speaking with them and letting them go through whatever they're going through. And then they regathered and it just carried on in similar form. And I, I mean, I was lost in admiration, for, you know, for them because they... They really honoured the request and they honoured the promise they'd made. And what did they speak about, you know? They spoke about their, their, their lovers, their partners, their friends. They spoke about their children or their grandchildren or whatever it happened to be. They, or they spoke about the children they yet hope to have. They spoke about beautiful places in nature, intimate moments of extraordinary closeness that they'd had with another human being. They spoke about all the things that mean most, I would say, to human beings. 
and it was deeply and profoundly moving. And when we finally completed that circle, I said, you know, thank you so much, really deeply appreciate it. But we have spent two and a half odd days speaking under this title of sustainability, seeking to encourage you to put your shoulder behind trying to create the kind of world in which the things that you have named would be celebrated, protected, um, you know, all those things. And you completely rejected it. Now I phrase it differently and put it in those terms and you have said, yes, 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 this is the world we want and we're prepared to stand for it. So I said, now you make a choice because our program is finishing. Now you make a choice and, and we'll decide whether or not you will turn your face away from all those things that you most deeply and profoundly love and carry on as you have before. Or you'll say, how on earth could I possibly do that? Um, so, I said, I'm not asking for, I mean, um, mass evacuation from your company. <laughs> I'm, saying, I'm saying, wouldn't it be amazing if you used your agency, your reputation and everything else to oblige change? And anyway, honestly, Natalie, I don't know. Um, they, they all said yes, and they did. I know that much. They, they, they really went for it. But that was the end of my engagement. My, if I can add this rather um, saddening afterthought, mm. I know, many of us probably feel, uh, or have very serious questions, if not already arrived at a conclusion, that to what extent does the world need these huge companies creating vast levels of profit and feeding their shareholders and all the rest of it. I'm no lover of these. I suppose I've held the view that um, if any of those organisations become more humane, if they become truly purpose-driven and all the rest of it, at least it will be better. In the end... I tend to think that there is a need for, again, for a, a radical redesign. And I don't know if we have the capacity to do that. And the other thing I'd say is I've, I've had the privilege and challenge of doing similar work with a whole number of other large organisations. If I take um, uh, Danone, North America, where I was on the advisory board, when Rose Macario, who was the chief exec of Patagonia, was chairing that board, mm. um, they became a B Corp, which is um, still in the same model, but in a, a, a truly impressive way, I think, of doing business. Is it, is it mm. as good as it should be? I don't think so, but it's amazing nonetheless. In one year, Danone North America made that step with Emmanuel Faber, who was the chief exec of Danone at that time's full support. And it was amazing to be part of it. And, and, I, and as soon as I saw that they put Rose Macario as, as chair of the board, I thought, wow, they really mean business because nobody would let her through the door. 
if they weren't really meaning business, it's a formidable human being. And a few, few, couple of few years later, um, Emmanuel Faber was lobbed out of that job of chief executive of Danone because they said he was too focused on purpose and values and all the rest and not focused on making profits for shareholders. I had a similar experience with Barclays Bank where a guy from the retail bank was made chief exec of the whole thing. He lasted another few years before they got rid of him for the same reason. Uh, it's gone. It keeps happening. And so it is like swimming against the tide. And why I tend to think, and I, I wish I didn't think like this, but I tend to think that it'll be through the disruption of normal business, the, the chaos that, will, that, that might ensue, that the ch that change has its greatest uh, hope. Mm. But that um, also probably implies immense levels of suffering for huge numbers mm. of people. So it's not something I look forward to. No. It's interesting. I mean, there's so many different places I want to go, but I, I want to comment on that with one of the quotes from your book and then maybe move into a different question. But one of the things that struck me about this and about how do we possibly create systems of more rejuvenating ways to live, um, one of the sentences that you, that you shared in your book is, everything exists at a point somewhere on the wheel of renewal and decline. And I keep thinking to myself, how much can we tinker within a declining system, what I think of as a declining system, um, while also creating the new shoots of something else so that when these thresholds of disruption are breached and chaos in various different guises unfolds, there is something to support us. There is something to support us, whatever sort of domain that's in. Um, but so I wonder, there's at the centre of uh, a lot of your work is the idea of how we can rediscover and reconnect with this innate sense of belonging to life and love of life in all of its different forms. And one of the stories that you talk about, and obviously this is the name of um, your second book, The Children's Fire, is this concept of the children's fire. So I wonder if you can tell us what this is and why it's so vital, especially at this moment in our, in our history. Yeah. So... Um... Uh, sometime around, uh, I can't honestly remember now, but 1984, 85, 86, sometime there. And a period of time when I had uh, begun this in extremely intensive um, training mentorship with these Native Americans, I was summoned to a meeting um, in the woods. Where there, was, there was a fire burning and I was ushered into a spare space in the circle to take my seat. At uh, this period of time, I was spending most of my days crying and upset and, and, and in a, a terrible state because they were um, re relentless in their work with me. Um, and I won't go into all of that, but it was tough, you know, it was really tough. So when I arrived in that, that evening to this fire, it was with some sense of relief that I was just going to sit down in the circle, you know, warm and... Uh, kick back a little bit. I was rather hoping there might be some stories told that you know, I could just enjoy. 
And then one of them spoke and said, do you know, um, Mac, you know, we wish to share with you a little fragment of our history and our ways of being. And we want you to, to allow this to go deep, as it were, and then our instruction, <laughs> that's what it was, it's not really a request, is that you will take this out into the world and share it wherever you can to whoever will listen, but in particular to those leaders uh, who hold positions of power and influence and seek to get past, as it were, whatever defences they erect and challenge them to adopt this principle in the way that they work, live their lives and, and conduct their business. Long time ago, our chiefs, men and women, sat together in council asking the question, uh, how do we govern our people? Because we as leaders have learnt and have known for a long time that those of us that become chiefs fairly swiftly begin to quite enjoy being chiefs, even with all the hassles that go with it. We quite like it. And after a certain period of time, as we become used to being a chief, respected and honoured in that position, the tendency is for human beings, leaders, is to begin to make decisions which favour rather more the leaders than the people that they govern. Knowing this, what could we do that would be a, a, a constant reminder to us of the obligations that we have, the responsibilities that we serve, and seek to ensure that what we, the laws that we create, the, the leadership that we provide, truly serves the best interests of the people and our Mother Earth. And so... My understanding is that they then did this thing that they would always do, really. They understood that the answer to every human question lay in creation around them. So they would travel out into nature and there would be ceremonies and vision quests and fasting and there would be ceremony and all these different things and they would go out. They'd reconvene, they'd share, dreams would be shared, all these other things would be shared. Afterwards, they would go out again. They would continue this process. They keep going out and then coming back. And at some point, a chief spoke, saying, we should create and kindle a little fire in the centre of our council of chiefs every time we gather. And we should call this little fire the children's fire. And we would expect and require every chief in the council to take the pledge of the children's fire, which is no law, no decision, no action, nothing of any kind will be permitted to go out from this circle of chiefs that will harm the children. And when these words were spoken, Within the context of that people, everybody would have known immediately 
that this chief was not speaking only about human children, but the young of all kind. Whereas within our society, I think it's fair to say that we assume and immediately just, we have no question, we just think human children. But it wasn't. It's the young of all kind, plant, animal, and so on. And, you know, I was sitting there probably thinking to myself of the business audiences I knew, how might they take this? <laughs> how would I actually speak about it? My mentors weren't really very interested in those questions. That was my challenge, you know. They just felt it was important. And I think underneath what they were speaking about was, the, was there a conviction that we as a species in most parts of our world have fallen out of love with our children. And that is the behaviour and the mindset of an insane species. You know, that, that is a sort of self-destruct place. Because our children, the, what the Children's Fire pledge is, is a, a, a pledge not to harm and damage the future of the children. But it's, it really, it's, it's, a, it's a pledge to life because that's what the children are. Whether, whether we are somebody who has children or will not ever have children, it doesn't matter. We all know that if there were no children, there is no future for our species. If there's no um, young for all those animals that are slowly, well, slowly and rapidly disappearing around our world, we know that this is a little bit of life collapsing, imploding and falling away. This is what is driving us to that cliff edge. Because, in truth, it would appear we don't care. Or if we do care, we don't care sufficiently. Mm. So it's, it's really sh shocking. And anyway, I, I can just include this bit. You know, naturally, I went back <laughs> to the UK, gulping and swallowing hard and thinking, how am I going to do this, you know? And at the first significant business conference that I spoke at, I spoke about... Um, the children's fire. And as I'd uh, shared with them the principle, I said, can you imagine, can you imagine um, how our world might be were we to make this the founding principle upon which all leaders who exert power and influence on our world operated from? Can you imagine what we could do in our religions, our universities, our schools, our businesses, you know, on and on, in, in, even in our homes. Can you imagine if we were to say no law, no action, no decision, no behaviour, nothing of any kind will be permitted that will harm the children? So then we think psychologically, emotionally, physically, spiritually, on and on. So I said that question, then I said, what kind of society is it anyway that would not place the children's fire at the very centre of its institutions of power? Yeah. Now, sat next to me was the guy whose conference it was. He was sort of um, focalising the whole thing. And he was the ex-HR um, director for one of the big oil companies. And he was a really sweet man. He's the sort of person you 
love to be your granddad, so to speak. He was great. But I could feel him getting really twitchy next to me. He was sort of jerking around in his seat, you know, because <laughs> I think he was thinking that his conference was really going off the rails and it wasn't quite what he was expecting. And he thought that I'd really lost it, you know. So as I stood there and he was sat, he suddenly jumped up. And I don't think he meant to, but he moved his arms in such a way that he knocked me back into my seat. And he said, don't worry, ladies and gentlemen. So I thought it was a strange way to do it. He said, don't worry, ladies and gentlemen. He said, soon we'll be moving to important matters. And I think what he meant was, you know, I'm sure you're all rather disturbed that we're in this rather kind of weird uh, philosophic frame of mind and that we'll get down to brass tacks soon and questions of the business would normally... And, and I was thinking, probably, actually, just feelings of relief, because at least I'd done it, and I could now report back to my mentors that I'd done it. And, I, and in a way, I was quite thankful that I'd been smacked back into my seat so that, so that I didn't have to carry on, you know, and I was all there. And then this incredible thing happened. You know, standing on the stage with the lights very, very bright in your eyes, the audience is a sea of darkness, you know, you can't. This voice rang out from the back of the auditorium. Why don't you sit down? Why don't you sit down and allow all of us to sit with the question that Mac has posed? Wow. This room is a bath of tears, of unshed tears. Why don't you sit down and let this silence continue? And this poor guy, I mean, he just said, well, he said, uh, he said, does everybody think the same? Complete silence. He sits down in his chair, I stood up. Can you imagine? What we could do were we to bring the children's fire into every boardroom, every school, every university, so on and so on. What kind of society is it that would not do such a thing? And the conference finished shortly afterwards. And uh, one day, a few months later, I got a, uh, an email from the, a CEO who was there and she wrote to me and she said, Dim, I just want you to know that I took your invitation and I implemented it in our business. And the board of directors thought I'd gone completely barking mad <laughs> and they got very upset and rather angry and all the rest of it. And eventually they calmed down and they saw the truth of it. And we have been through our business trying to ensure that it is compliant with this pledge. And I have to say that I am rather uh, relieved that we didn't have to completely dismantle and abandon the whole thing. But I thought you'd like to know. Wow. But anyway, I just feel like a question as simple as that. I mean, isn't that blinding, like blindingly common sense? Isn't that just a baseline? And yet it has impact. And isn't it extraordinary that it should have impact? I've often thought, Natalie, I made an entire 
career out of speaking the blindingly obvious <laughs> and somehow it being received as something that's, you know, worth listening to because, honestly, I think it's a measure of how far we've gone down a, down a, a really strange self-harming journey mm. and but we there is no question about it without the honoring of the children's fire and it's not and it is really truly not just human it's like it's like without trees without beauty without grass without regenerative soils without climate that that works without all these things we have no right you know if we we're given all this power and with power comes responsibility. So, you know. Mm. I love it when you tell stories. You just bring everything to life. Um, I am curious to ask, when things get really difficult, as I'm sure they must at some point, because I think all of us encounter dark days or difficult times, how do you orient yourself towards life and wholeness when things are really bleak? Well, if I can just say, you know, um, right now, as we sit here talking, are things really bleak? For those in Turkey who are experiencing that earthquake, that is today. You know. For those in the Yemen, hardly spoken of now, starving to death, this is today. For even my uh, mother-in-law's um, village in Kenya, with the climate now being disturbed and, and the rains not coming when they should come, and therefore food being in short supply and people stealing from each other's gardens and draining each other's water tanks, this is today. So we have that as a context around us. And then we have our own personal experience. So uh, for me last year, uh, you know, my wife had, had cancer and we were, at one point, I couldn't help myself considering how it might be if that did not go well and she died. And then you have a 74-year-old dad with a six-year-old boy which is BR situation. And how utterly frightening I found it to think that I might not be, you know, that he might be left in some way vulnerable, even though there are many who, who would, I'm sure, seek to help. Not only that, just, just the sheer fact of my life without her, you know, um, and everything. So the fear, as it were, comes uncomfortably close and then we have something you know Embercombe which like most places similar to Embercombe it, it always exists with, with very little you know it wouldn't take too much to knock it down mm. because it has it's trying to do the work it's trying to do within the context of a pretty unforgiving economy as it were um, so so all of these things, uh, and it's always the same for me. I, I don't want to forget about Turkey. I don't want to forget about what's, what's happening in the Ukraine. I don't want to forget what's happening 
in our own country in many places. And neither, neither do I wish to forget that uh, the daffodils are coming up all over the place at the time we're doing this recording and speaking. That another spring is going to come, that bluebells are preparing for the big push to burst through, you know, and, and, and send that profound scent wafting through the woodland. I don't want to forget that the deer will soon be having babies and, and little badgers will appear and little foxes and all these other wonderful, wonderful, beautiful, kind, wild beings. I don't want to forget that Kai's just celebrated his sixth birthday and is full of the expectation that his life will be exciting and all sorts of things, you know. And my wife doesn't have cancer now. She's, she's well. And one day something else will happen. So we, we, in truth, the great challenge I think that we have as human beings is that if, if we have not closed our eyes and we've not stuffed our ears with cotton wool, then we will be aware of a level of suffering, uh, close or far, that threatens our whole um, capacity to live and love. And at the same time, we're surrounded with the most extraordinary beauty and funny, funny things and lovely things and gorgeous things. And so that's how we're asked to live, really, I think, is holding both. So what did I do? And I, I attempted to really step up and be there for my wife, make sure that she knew she was loved and that, and that I was there for her. I tried to make sure that my, my little son was, was, you know, that he was played with as, as often as ever, that he might be aware that, that his mum was not well, but not to scare him unnecessarily whilst not also shielding him from all of that. I continued to feed my birds and, uh, and just enjoy them, and I watched the sunrise and the sunset. I'm not sure that ever finishes, does it? Do you know what I mean? It's like this is the daily death of... Uh, the, the daily diet of death and renewal. Life and everything. It's a... It's a it's most. It's an extraordinary cocktail that we've been served up, <laughs> and uh, constant connection with nature, and by that I, I include human beings, and conversations such as this, and seeking to open-heartedly meet the world, and be brave where bravery is called for to understand that gentleness and vulnerability and kindness are key leadership attributes, to do all these things seems to me the only sane way we can truly bring ourselves to the world and meet the challenges we have to face. Mac, thank you. Um, if people want to find out more and want to join you on your journey and the other wonderful courses that are happening at Embercombe, what are the best places to look? Well, I think, as you mentioned earlier, if they did go to Embercombe's website, which is embercombe, E-M-B-E-R-C-O-M-B-E 
www.ghostbusiness.org. If they went there, they'd find the programs that are there. And uh, if they Googled Mac McCartney, they would find various talks and my website and other bits and pieces. So, yeah, and thank you for that, Natalie. I've really enjoyed the conversation with you and, and uh, yeah. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you've enjoyed the show, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen and leave a rating and a review. It really does mean the world to me to read your support, and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work creating, recording, and producing each episode. To find out more about my work, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources, and you can reach me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. Bye.